It's the 1950s, Minamata Bay, Kumamoto Prefecture, Japan. But something is wrong. Something nobody yet understands. In just two decades, this peaceful bay will transform into a landscape of horror for parents. Children will be born with deformities, their bodies and senses cruelly twisted and robbed. But for now, it's the cats that are first to change. Limping and shaking, their odd behavior dismissed until they begin falling into the ocean. In Japan, where suicide rates are high, an eerie suggestion circulates. Are the cats taking their own lives? The suggestion turns grave when people start showing the same symptoms. Experts are called in and a common link emerges. The fish from the bay. Office of Minamata City began receiving reports of an unknown epilepsy-like affliction which has since become known as Minamata disease. By July 1959, the terror had a name. Mercury poisoning. Eyes turned to the Chiso Corporation's giant petrochemical plant in Minamata. Years of denied allegations end in a chilling revelation. Chiso had dumped 82 tons of mercury into Minamata Bay. To understand the scale of this horror, it's crucial to know that it takes less than a gram of mercury to cause death. Protests erupted in the wake of the Minamata tragedy. Compensation was meager, and a generation of children bore the scars of mercury poisoning. In Tokyo, the news reached Hayao Miyazaki. He found himself pondering a curious question. With fishing halted in the contaminated waters of Minamata Bay, could wildlife reclaim its space? This thought ignited a creative spark in Miyazaki. He imagined a world ravaged by war and pollution, where a toxic jungle, the Sea of Decay, encroached upon the earth. However, amidst this desolation, an intense surge of life prevailed, proving the indomitable resilience of nature. Although Minamata Bay didn't morph into the ecosystem he envisaged, Miyazaki, an unwavering idealist, intertwined this concept with a mythological narrative. conjured a story of a girl enamored with insects thriving amidst decay, a symbol of life's unyielding persistence. Nausicaa. Miyazaki decided. Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind. From 1UP Media, this is Empires, episode two of a five-part series, A Wizard's Call.
Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind didn't just make a mark. It became an animated sensation, selling over a million tickets and laying the foundation for Studio Ghibli. While Miyazaki was the brain behind the concept, another figure, Toshio Suzuki, played a pivotal role in breathing life into this masterpiece. Suzuki, along with Miyazaki and Isao Takahata, stood as the triad of minds that birthed Studio Ghibli. Wearing multiple hats, Suzuki transitioned from the producer's chair to presiding over the studio, managing both the commercial and promotional aspects of the studio's films. Today, clouds of controversy hover with allegations of misuse of company funds casting shadows. Yet, regardless of these whispers of financial misconduct, Suzuki's three-decade legacy cannot be denied. Born on August 19, 1948, in Nagoya, Aichi Prefecture, young Suzuki was among the select few to afford a television in their home. A luxury that opened worlds. The contrasting cinematic tastes of his parents immersed him in a diverse universe of Eastern and Western films. His father's manga collection, discreetly borrowed, became secret gateways to imagined realms. Growing up, Suzuki learned very quickly that the world is never as it seems. His mother often recounted a tale from before World War II, describing her encounter with a Japanese emperor, revered as a living god. The common belief was that one must bow deeply and avoid direct eye contact with the emperor, lest they go blind. Intrigued, Suzuki asked his mother about her own reaction upon meeting the emperor. Her reply? I looked at him, yet I didn't go blind. Such episodes made a deep impression on Suzuki, prompting him to challenge norms and question his surroundings. After graduating from Keio University in 1972, Suzuki married his insatiable curiosity about the world and his love for media, joining Tokuma Shoten, a publishing house. Tokuma Shoten, though a less familiar name today, was a multimedia colossus, renowned for its magazines, but also engaged in the realms of film and video games. Its film arm would become a stepping stone to the inception of Studio Ghibli. In 1973, Suzuki would dive into the world of anime and manga, when he was transferred to the comic and comic magazine team. There, he would meet manga artists and film directors, learning the ins and outs of the industry. Over the next five years, Suzuki would continue having a diverse experience, from interviewing biker gangs to kamikaze survivors. But then, 
a change. Hideo Ogata, the chief editor, had a new task for him. Suzuki. I've been watching the trends, and there's no denying it. Animation is booming. Ogata started, his gaze intense yet excited. It's undeniable, sir. The animation scene is vibrant and shows no signs of slowing down. A spark of ambition gleamed in Ogata's eyes. Exactly. That's why I want to launch a magazine that captures this rise. And I want you to lead it, Suzuki. Suzuki, taken aback, hesitated. Wow. Uh, Thank you. That is... Um, quite the honor. When are we looking to launch? In three weeks. A prickly sensation washed over Suzuki's face, as if the blood was retreating, deserting his cheeks. Uh, Sir, that's impossible. Three weeks? We don't have the manpower for that. Ogata smiled. That's why you'll have all the staff you need, Suzuki. Consider it done. Realizing there was no escaping the task, he began thinking of the timelines. Okay, if it's three weeks, minus one week for printing, and minus one week for story building, I'll probably have only one week for research and interviews to fill up About a hundred (sighs) pages. Okay, Ogata-san. I'll need someone who knows the ins and outs of anime if we want to do this. Do you know any experts to introduce me? Ogata leaned back, his assurance a testament to his leadership. I know just the person. Let me introduce you. Funnily enough, the expert turned out to be three high school girls that Ogata knew, which provided Suzuki many different animes to look at. Possibly pressed for time, he decided that he would fill up about eight pages of the magazine with classic anime movies, and he asked the girls only one question. Tell me, what are the classics that I should be looking at? The Great Adventure of Horus, Prince of the Sun. The movie Horus, Prince of the Sun was a commercial flop by Toei Animation. It hit the screens on July 21, 1968, with aspirations of resonating with audiences of all ages, much like Disney's classics. But it misfired failing to grasp the attention of either children or adults, and it was swiftly pulled from cinemas. However, it continued to linger in select outlets, where something unexpected occurred. The film, though initially overlooked, started gaining traction among high school and college students. There was an allure to its modern animation style, and a devoted following emerged. In this wave of late yet ardent appreciation, two names associated with the film 
caught the attention of Suzuki. Isao Takahata, the director, and Hayao Miyazaki, the creative mind behind the film's evocative landscapes. Suzuki was on the clock. Talents like Takahata and Miyazaki weren't going to have all day. He delved into his network, seeking to track them down, and luck was on his side. Turns out, they were still a team. Their creative synergy now channeled into a new project, the future boy Conan. The prospect excited Suzuki. With a mix of anticipation and anxiety, he picked up the phone. The phone rings in the quiet office. Takahata picks up. Hello? Hi, uh, this is Suzuki from Takuma Shoten. Suzuki dives right in. No time for pleasantries. I'm listening. Uh, Takahata-san, uh, I want to arrange an interview with you for our new magazine about animation. We think your thoughts would be invaluable. Takahata takes a moment, perhaps appreciating the intricate drawings before him. Suzuki-san, the recent popularity of animation is closely tied to the success of films like Space Battleship Yamato. It's a wave, and waves eventually break. I am not sure if the excitement will last beyond the current buzz. Suzuki holds the line. Takahata's response hangs, ambiguous in the silent space between them. Was this a polite decline, or a door left slightly ajar? Takahata continues, expressing his reservations and delving into his perspectives on the current state of animation. Suzuki listens intently, waiting for an opening, an indication of where this is headed. Minutes stretch into an hour. With every elaboration, Suzuki's optimism wanes. It dawns on him that Takahata might be softening the blow, a long prelude to a gentle letdown. And then it comes. Oh, no. Suzuki's mind drifts as he hears the most dreaded words escape Takahata's mouth. And that's why I can't agree to an interview. However... Suzuki's attention snaps back. Hayao Miyazaki is with me. He has his own views and might be interested in speaking with you. Shall I pass the phone to him? Why, yes, please do. Yes, yes, I get the general idea already. I was listening to the conversation. Here is what I think. I have tons of things I want to say about the movie. I want 16 pages. Um, what? Turns out Suzuki's first interaction with the pair had been a strange one-and-a-half-hour call which had him baffled. He politely declined both and decided that he would figure out something else for his magazine. Perhaps he muttered to himself, The movie probably isn't worth it anyway. Yet fate had other plans. A few weeks later, an event showcasing the movie cropped up in Ikebukuro, 
a haven for female otaku culture. On a whim, Suzuki decided to attend, a flicker of hope burning that perhaps the experience might alter his initial impressions. The reality was nothing short of profound. Suzuki belonged to a generation marred by the global political uncertainty of the Cold War. Because of America's influence over Japan, the country had indirectly been involved in the Vietnam War by storing Agent Orange, a poisonous gas used against the Vietnamese in Okinawa. With this historical backdrop, Horus, which follows a small village valiantly defending itself against a formidable adversary, resonated deeply with Suzuki. It echoed the unsettling geopolitical dynamics of the time. In that moment of cinematic brilliance, he grasped the revolutionary essence of Miyazaki and Takahata's work. A conviction grew within him. A second encounter with the masterminds became necessary. All that he needed was the right opportunity. It's 1979, a year after Suzuki's initial meeting with Takahata and Miyazaki. And he's in a hurry. Miyazaki had his first directorial debut in the castle of Cagliostro in the popular Lupin III franchise. And Suzuki's colleague was struggling to get a response from him for an article. Realizing that Suzuki had interacted with him before, the colleague quickly messaged him. Please help. Mia-san is not speaking to me. Suzuki stepped into the room, the atmosphere tense and awkward. Miyazaki was fully engrossed in his work, his dedication apparent in every precise movement. Mia-san, it's been a while. Suzuki started, attempting to break the ice, but Miyazaki's silence was a loud, unyielding wall. In fact, Suzuki noticed Miyazaki hadn't even looked up to greet him. I came to talk about Animage. Suzuki pressed on. We'd love to feature you and the castle of Cagliostro in our next issue. Miyazaki was engrossed in his drawing, his focused attention a stark contrast to the room's silence. I don't want to be interviewed. His voice was firm and final without breaking his concentration. According to the records, Suzuki realized at this moment that there would be no interview today. Instead, it would be a battle of wills between an unmovable object and an unstoppable force. Understood. Suzuki replied, his voice steady as he headed out before returning with two stools. Signaling to his colleague, He sat with Miyazaki, convinced that they could bring down his walls. Miyazaki would explain years later that he thought the two were extremely shady, which explained why he ignored them for hours until two o'clock, deep into the night. Uh, Miyasan, what time will you be coming back to work? 9 a.m. Understood. 
The very next morning, when Miyazaki arrived at the studio, he was surprised to see both Suzuki and his colleague waiting there. They were determined to match Miyazaki's schedule, which continued the next day and the following. Suzuki was probably thinking that this had better work when Miyazaki woke him from his days. What do you call this here? He gestured to a storyboard image of a bicycle overtaking. Suzuki was at a loss, struck mute and motionless. The irony of the situation gnawed at him. Now that Miyazaki was finally open to conversation, he found himself unequipped, without the slightest inkling on how to assist. It's called overtaking. His colleague replied in Japanese before explaining further. By chance, the colleague was a fan of professional cycling and understood the different forms of cycling. Ah, I see. Miyazaki smiled. After that fateful day, it seemed that Miyazaki warmed up to the pair and day by day started conversing. According to Suzuki, he would eventually get more than he bargained for. Once Miyazaki started talking, he couldn't stop. Having met Miyazaki, Suzuki set his eyes on Takahata, who was now working on a separate project named Chie the Brat. Pulling favors, he met a friend from Toei who could introduce him. Suzuki arrived at Telecom feeling excited. Telecom, despite the name, was the production house that Takahata was at. Surrounded by a world of storyboards and the animators breathing life into them, Suzuki probably wondered what inner machinations Takahata had, oblivious to the fact that their conversation would soon take a sharp turn. Suzuki-san, Suzuki-san, come meet Takahata-san. His friend gestured. After quick introductions, his friend pointed towards the exit. There's a coffee shop right in front. How about you and Takahata-san grab a coffee? It was a statement that promised an informal yet intimate setting. Suzuki was thrilled. But it turns out the right in front was grossly inaccurate, and the pair found themselves walking the long stretch in awkward silence. Perhaps he was thinking about work. Suzuki might have thought as Takahata ambled quietly beside him. Finally, the pair spotted the coffee shop. As they sat down, it seemed like the hustle and bustle had awakened the quiet Takahata, who sliced through the silence sharply. I suppose you want to ask the usual trivial questions. Like, what did I like about the original manga? What led me to do animation? And so on. If his tone hadn't already betrayed his annoyance and disinterest, you should have seen his face. Eyes narrowed, eyebrows furrowed into a stern frown, and his lips pressed into a thin, taut line. In that moment, it dawned on Suzuki. This was not a friendly chat. This was another duel of wits and words. Your work seemed to lack consistency. Suzuki shot back, fueling the fire. Takahata's face darkened. It's consistent in my own mind. What makes you say something like that? 
Surprisingly, the parry of words and opinions continued for three whole hours. Takahata's tone condescending. Suzuki's defensive, yet probing. Finally, at the end, Takahata let out a long, deep breath. So there. His tone dripping with a mix of exhaustion and disdain. I doubt you can make sense of what I've said. If you think you can, give it a try. How dare he belittle me? Suzuki must have thought before he gave a polite smile and a direct reply. Okay, I'll give it a shot. Despite their animosity, Suzuki was determined not to appear shaken. He met with Takahata as often as he could, even after the article was completed. Their interactions very quickly turned technical as they began talking about plot, animation, and inspiration. In order to keep up, Suzuki would read the source material of Chie the Brat, a whole eight volumes. While we couldn't find the text, you should know that the average manga volume is around 180 to 220 pages. Suzuki might have read a good 1,000 pages of the series. Suzuki's conversations would have captured Takahata's attention so tightly that it began to affect actual productions of the series. In fact, it was reported that on more than one occasion, the producer had to scold Suzuki for distracting the team. Their conversations would continue for two years, and in 1981, much to Suzuki's surprise, he was invited to the opening event of the movie. There, Takahata immediately greeted Suzuki with a deep bow, leaving him stunned. Upon rising, he spoke deeply. Our talks were of tremendous help. Thanks to you, the direction of the film was established. I want to express my appreciation. Years later, Suzuki explained that this experience had a profound impact on him. Perhaps he might enjoy becoming a film producer. In those two years, Suzuki, Takahata, and Miyazaki had cultivated a unique way of communicating that the world would later recognize as radical candor. Popularized by a former Apple and Google executive, radical candor is the belief that honest feedback can promote accountability, mutual respect, and self-awareness. So brutally honest were the trio with each other that 30 years after Studio Ghibli's founding, Miyazaki would confess, We don't respect one another. <laughs> their constructive arguments would eventually make their way to Tokoma Shoten's office, where the president was ready to create something special. The only question was what? Initially, Suzuki believed that Miyazaki's ideas could be turned into a film which Tokuma Shoten flatly rejected. Back then, most works were greenlit only if they were based on existing publications, such as a book or manga. Determined, Miyazaki and Suzuki 
decided to release Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind as a manga series, and it met rave reviews. With renewed proof, Tokuma Shoten relented, and both Suzuki and Miyazaki likely rejoiced, not knowing the chaos ahead. While Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind would become a hit, it would crush the team in the process. Years later, Hayao Miyazaki would confide in Suzuki quietly. I have to tell you something as a friend. I made a movie, but I lost all kinds of friends. I don't want that kind of life. From 1UP Media, this is Empires, episode two of a five-part series, A Wizard's Call. Next on Empires, we'll join the trio of Isao Takahata, Hayao Miyazaki, and Toshio Suzuki as they produce Nausicaa of the Valley of the Wind, the movie that birthed Studio Ghibli. Follow us so you won't miss out on episode three of our five-part series, The Sea of Decay. Empires is a one-up media original, produced and written by Guang Jin, edited by Alex, audio experience by Ethan Sam, additional engineering by Ashley from One Up Media, and narrated by Luis Cruz and Claire Bernal. International research by Sonia, Kuyet, and Jamin from One Up Media. A quick word on our reenactments and dramatizations. While we can't know exactly what they say, think, or feel at the moment. It is all based on research. Thank you for listening.